Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. This is Season 11, Episode 14, Part 2. Today, I'm very happy to be speaking with Rachel Gordon Barnett and Lisa Klingman Harvey, who are lifelong South Carolinians who have been instrumental in preserving Jewish history across the state. They are founding members of the Historic Columbia Jewish Heritage Initiative, and they live in Columbia, South Carolina. They have a book that is out today, Kugels and Collards, named after the uh, website that they have created, Kugels and Collards as well. All proceeds from the sale of this book will be going to the Historic Columbia Jewish Heritage Initiative. We have links in the bio to the Kugels and Collards website, as well as the links for the purchase of the new book. You'll want to check out the website and you want to take a look at the book and purchase it because it's really wonderful and is chock full of wonderful historical information, as well as just gorgeous photographs and uh, lots of really great recipes. I'm going to take you now to my conversation with Rachel and Lisa. Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. Today, I'm speaking with Rachel Gordon Barnett and Lisa Kligman Harvey, who are lifelong South Carolinians who have been instrumental in preserving Jewish history across the state. They are founding members of the Historic Columbia Jewish Heritage Initiative. They live in Columbia, South Carolina, and have a book that is out today, Kugels and Collards. Rachel and Lisa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us, Dean. Thank you, Dean. For our guests who are um, listening today who may not be familiar with your work, can you each tell us a little bit about yourselves, where you're from originally, and where you live now? Sure. Uh, my name's Rachel. I am. I live in Columbia, South Carolina now, capital city of South Carolina. I originally, um, I grew up in a very small town in South Carolina, about an hour from Columbia, a uh, population on a good day, about 1,500. We were the only Jewish family in town. Um, nowadays, I, I left the state after college, after the university, but I came back to South Carolina in 86. And nowadays, I am the executive director of the Jewish Historical Society of South Carolina. Okay, Lisa, do you want to go ahead? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hi, I'm Lisa Kligman Harvey. Um, uh, I am Jewish and Southern, and food is my love language. Um, and I am from uh, Columbia, which is, like Rachel said, the capital of the state, uh, South, uh, Columbia, South Carolina. I haven't gone very far in my life. I was born here. I went to school here. And I have raised a family. I'm very uh, here and I have some grandchildren here. Um, and I've been very involved in many things. I am a, a therapist by trade, a child and adolescent therapist, but I've been very involved in all things Jewish and the Jewish community and initiated the Jewish Cultural uh, Arts Committee as well as was the co-chair of the Columbia Holocaust Education Commission for 20 years. And Kugels and Collards, who knew that this would happen at this time in our lives? It's just been uh, uh, an amazing project. I'd like to ask you both how food played an important role in your upbringing. Did you have any food mentors who helped you develop your interest in food? Well, food is very important in, in Jewish culture. 
and growing up holidays, a lot of Jewish holidays are celebrated around the table. Um, and so of course, you know, we talk about food, it becomes part of, of the language we speak. Um, as far as food mentors growing up, um, there was a woman who was very important in my life. She worked for my grandmother. And once she passed away, she continued to work for my mother. And she basically taught my mother, because my mother, when she was a young bride, didn't know how to cook. And she taught my mother how to cook Jewish recipes and basically cook Jewish and and Southern. And she brought the recipes into the home. Um, I did not learn from her at her elbow, I will say, but somehow you absorb this. And when I was an adult, I started trying to figure out those recipes and how do you make these things? It came back to me. Somehow there was something in the deep recesses of my brain of Ethel's cooking that I could start with and try and by trial and error create some recipes many of these recipes uh, most were not written down so it's by taste and uh, trial and error that we can create some of these dishes now rachel is a wonderful wonderful cook she and she's an intuitive cook even though she learned from ethel may and uh, probably her grandmother, sorb from her grandmother. And um, I learned uh, really about food in lots of different ways, but mainly my mother. And I realized at about age 40 or so that that these recipes were becoming a little bit more important to me and noticed how she set the table. I was the oldest of five because when I was younger, all we wanted to do was eat and go and try to eat as much as we could before siblings, <laughs> but <laughs> then uh, other things about the table became more important. I started to look and listen, and um, I think my mom left me a wonderful legacy of recipes and style and um, uh, her Jewish and Southern kind of influence really uh, sets well with me. I just, I'm, I'm in a gourmet supper club Dean called the Gourmet Divas that Ooh. we are premiering Kugels and Collards in September. It's my turn. And so it will be all things Kugels and Collards. The table setting will be over the top. Uh, I will be using my mother's beautiful china. Um, anyway, yeah, we're I'm a, I'm a foodie and so is Rachel. And our influences through this book has broadened, I think. Don't you, Rachel? Oh, absolutely. For sure. You're both founding members of the Historic Columbia Jewish Heritage Initiative. Can you talk to us a bit about your roles in that organization, how it came to be, and what it means for your community? Historic Columbia is an incredible organization. It is, I mean, the Jewish Heritage Initiative is just a small part. It's a project of what they do. Um, they are preservation and education and history of Columbia's community. Um, the executive director there, Robin White, had great foresight. Somebody said we ought to um, take a look at perhaps documenting communities um, such as the Jewish community. And she reached out to a lot of organizations locally, and we all met and just said, yes, this was important to document Columbia's Jewish history. 
So we did this through uh, collecting oral histories and through walk, developing walking tours as well as online tours and uh, developing all kinds of programming around us. And Lisa and I had a hunch as we were developing the, the Jewish Historic um, Initiative that people would engage with us over memories of food. And it would be a great way to get folks to talk about their family history, because who doesn't have a family recipe or have a great memory that, that they can associate with, with food? So we um, approached um, Robin with this idea, and she eagerly, she jumped in, and her marketing team um, joined with us, and we decided that a blog would be the most um, efficient way to do this. Lisa and I, along with some other folks, went out and um, generated some interest. We asked people to tell us their favorite food memories, and we started collecting those stories. In the meantime, the marketing team developed this fabulous blog site for us. Lisa actually came up with the name Kugels and Collards. It just came to her, and the moment it rolled off her tongue, it was perfect. Kugel being the Lakshan Kugel, the rich noodle pudding that we, our grandmothers made and we'd still make and very, you know, Jewish dish and the collards being such a Southern dish. And it's just the melding of those two cultures that come together to create the Southern Jewish table. So for three years, we collected stories from uh, Columbia's Jewish community. And, and along the way, we created a sort of unintentional archive, but it has become exactly what we had hoped. We're telling Columbia's Jewish history through the lens of food and memory. Along the way, historic, uh, the University of South Carolina Press asked us for a proposal if we would be interested in taking Kugels and Collards statewide. And uh, four years ago, we submitted a proposal and four years later, we now have a book. It is statewide. It is Kugels and Collards across South Carolina. It is still just a snapshot of Southern Jewish stories from across South Carolina. Okay. And then um, I wanted to ask you, um, you also created a blog that um, kind of goes along with this effort. It is the Kugels and Collards blog to preserve and share Columbia's Jewish history through food stories, recipes, and photographs. Now, as a librarian, this really interests me um, because I love any kind of archival work that kind of collects information. What it was like was it like for you creating this blog and going and collecting the stories, the recipes, the um, photographs, all these things? Um, like Rachel had mentioned that. Um, out of the Jewish Heritage Initiative, Initiative came the idea for the Kugels and Collards blog, and they embraced it. And we thought, well, it would be difficult to get people to write stories. But Dean, you know, when you ask somebody for a 600 or 1200 word essay, it's a little intimidating. But then at the end, they thanked us. They sat down, they wrote about their family memories, they looked around for recipes, they looked for photos, because in the blog we um, share recipes and, and photos. Um, sometimes they're contemporary stories and sometimes they reach back 
In fact, the historic, uh, it, there are stories every month from, oh my gosh, for the last four, five, uh, six years now in the blog, and they've continued. But there are stories that are, uh, that even the historic Columbia team got on board and they had archives of, re of Jewish restaurants and uh, we had a Jewish uh, mayor in Columbia, South Carolina, that had a beautiful uh, orchid and uh, had recipe, had a, am I right? I'm right, right? Had a beautiful garden and uh, Mayor Lyons. And um, so they got in the act as well of uh, pulling out their archives and finding wonderful stories of, of Jewish bakeries that are no longer here. But then we also got to feature some of the Jewish foodways in Columbia, South Carolina, that would celebrate uh, Bruce uh, Bruce Miller's Groucho's Deli. And um, and then, but for the most part, they were just personal memories of grandmother's rugula or, you know, the Jewish traditional, the holidays, uh, Rosh Hashanah is coming up. We have great stories about Rosh Hashanah, Passover, and food and the food stories that go along with that. I know that when I watch historical television shows that talk about history and, you know, people coming to America and living in America, I, I often get very emotional. When you were getting the essays and the photographs, was it kind of emotional for you as well, seeing all this information about the community and the history? Well, so I'm going to um, talk about a little bit about gathering the essays for the blog as well as the book. Okay. You know, food is sensory and sitting around the table is a sensory experience. I mean, you can hear the china click, you can smell the brisket, you can hear the background chatter and people's laughter and maybe some tears around the table. So when we you ask people to talk about this, yes, it becomes extremely emotional and visceral and their memories flow and one memory go, goes to another and we have fabulous stories. For what, if you don't mind, I'll talk a little bit about one of the, the book where Please. we were gathering stories for the book from all over the state. It was during COVID. So we had to use Zoom. We thought in our in our ideal world that we would travel the state, but then uh, the pandemic happened. So we ended up doing lots of Zooms um, as well as asking people to write their own stories. But I gathered th uh, three siblings in a Zoom session. They hadn't seen each other or hadn't really gotten together. I was kind of, this was the reason in a while. And boy, I'm telling you, I couldn't get them off zoom because one memory led to another and uh one of the members of the family got pretty emotional you know talking about grandma and talking about some of the memories that um that she remembered growing up and uh, related to food so yes you're right Can you talk about some of the feedback that you got from the blog? Um, I imagine that, you know, people seeing this information, kind of feeling some of the same feelings and experiencing some of the things you had compiling it. I imagine that you've gotten an outpouring of letters and emails from the community. <laughs> Rachel, you want to answer that? <laughs> so, you know, the blog has really focused on Columbia. And I think yeah. there's a level of awareness 
Um, we hear from people. It's, it's definitely gathering steam. Um, the book will be out, you know, it's just now hitting home. So we'll, we'll wait and see what our reviews are. But we've had, um, like I said, this is a snapshot of South Carolina, of Jewish South Carolina. Yeah. It is certainly not an end-all book. Our hope is that, you know, people reach out with their own food stories or they begin to share those stories with their children, perhaps, or share those recipes. So people are not in my position trying to recreate recipes. You know, don't wait. Go ahead and, and gather those up. So we hope this, um, we get, we start spark a conversation. You know, our hope is that people, because they know about this, will begin to either write or, you know, tell their own stories. They don't need our blog to do that. We're welcome. You know, whenever we have a conversation with somebody, they said, oh, yeah, we just read your last blog. It was amazing. You know, gosh, I never thought about it like that. And I, it was good to hear about those old restaurants in Columbia. Let me tell you about my favorite restaurant or my father's favorite restaurant. So, yes, it definitely sparks conversation. I think one of the latter, the last blogs I actually wrote was called My Father's Favorite Columbia Restaurants. And I mean, this was during the during the 50s and 60s. So you think about that, you know, how that would. And the, our archives had pictures, beautiful pictures and recipes like menus. It's great. Can you talk about the importance of food in Jewish culture and the Southern culture, how these two cultures are similar and different in their approach to food? Well, food is really important in both cultures. I mean, think about Southern food, you know, things come to mind. Same thing with Jewish food. Um, the difference, the thing about what we're writing about is the Southern Jewish table. So what does that right. mean? The Southern Jewish table is a combination of Jewish recipes. Um, we're talking mainly about Ashkenazi um, recipes. Right. So those would be your brisket and kugels and uh, simas and all these different recipes that people think of. And then you've got this melding of Southern foods coming onto the table with it. It's not a mashup of recipes. Rather, they coexist on the same table. You have like collards and okra and tomatoes and rice and all these fabulous vegetables and items that were brought to this country by enslaved Africans. So, you know, we owe this, uh, th these foods have made their way into the South and, and into Southern culture. And I guess now into American culture as well. Um, the difference, though, when you start bringing Southern foods into a, some co some homes is the kosher laws, kashrut. And some people kept kosher, some people didn't keep kosher, some people still do keep kosher. You know, you can't, you cannot just say it's not a monolith. But yeah. from my own personal experience growing up, there was never pork in the house. A lot of Southern vegetables are cooked with that back with pork, yeah. they're, they're seasoned, but I, it was never allowed in our home. And therefore, yeah, right. and therefore, you know, I never grew up with that taste. I think a lot of this is taste is what your taste buds get accustomed to. But I would say food, um, Lisa, what food is really important in Jewish cultures. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, there, there are always conversations when you gather women 
who are raising children about what your kids will eat, what they won't eat. And then it kind of goes from there. I remember raising my children at the baseball field. We would be at the baseball field for, for, you know, hours upon end. And we ended up writing a cookbook there too. I mean, because (laughs) we had so many recipes that we wanted to share or actually keep like, you know, the baseball team's mothers wanted to keep each other's recipes. And so, um, and the, the, the Southern table itself is, I think, important in presentation and it, it it probably stems from lots of older Southern, you know, traditions. Um, and I, I, I know that Rachel sets a beautiful table is, and I think it's important to us, but to me, what I love, um, and seeing now is that melding, like Rachel said, of the Jewish foods, as well as the Southern foods. It's not unusual to see a biscuit, you know, at a Sunday morning, lox and bagel brunch. You'll have a biscuit. We have biscuits. And it's not unusual to see okra gumbo at our Sabbath meal or at a tradition, at one of our holiday meals. It will be at my Rosh Hashanah meal. Um, It's not unusual for the at the Southern Jewish table to see maybe even preserves that were hand, you know, were uh, canned. Um, now, Rachel and I don't can, but um, our, certainly our Southern neighbors do. And some of uh, some folks that we who wrote in the book, uh, they do. And some of those preserves uh, find their way along the table um, at breakfast and um, at brunches but there are so many examples. So what we have found when we've um, spoken with people who don't live in the South, particularly, they're really fascinated by the Southern Jewish table because when they think Jewish food, they think of New York delis. Yeah, that's right. And that's That's what comes to mind. So, you know, we've had delis down South and Groucho's is still here. His uh, Bruce Miller's grandfather, Ivan Miller's started it way back when. But uh, that's, it's different than a Southern Jewish table. I mean, who doesn't like a great corned beef sandwich, you know, but that's, yeah, but that's not what we're talking about. Um, This is more of the melding of the cultures, but every, with the Jewish overlay to it, like I said, with the kosher blog. One of the, when we asked people their favorite, like their favorite, it was, there was a, there was a tie between chopped liver and fried chicken. Yeah. So there you go. There were so many people that go, well, let's see, I love chopped liver, but I'm not going to make that. And I love, and we really love fried chicken. Well, I'm not going to probably make that either, but those are the two (laughs) memories. (laughs) Yeah. Jumping off of that, um, how has the assimilation of ingredients and preparation methods shaped the Southern Jewish table? Well, Lisa, you want to talk about picking crab? Yeah, so I had to kind of process Dean's question for a minute. It was so well, <laughs> it was so well questioned. Um, yeah, I, I think that there are a lot of of uh, occasions that Jews really did choose to assimilate and kind of by. Um, 
taste <laughs> and culture eventually assimilated some of their food choices. So my great-grandmother only kept kosher. She was from Charleston. My maternal family's from Charleston, South Carolina, which um, has a, a probably our largest majority of Jews in the state. And even at the turn of the century in the 1800s, early uh, uh, 1900s, had the largest population of Jews, larger than New York, um, in Charleston, South Carolina. But, um, and our, my great, uh, all of our grandparents came from either Russia, you know, the Eastern Europe, Rachel and mine. But at that time, those, those um, folks were um, Sephardic. The, the population that came to America was a, from Spain and um, Mediterranean um, countries. But um, our, our, uh, back to your question of assimilation, we've all had to assimilate. Uh, we're all a melting pot. But when it comes to keeping kosher, it's pretty black and white. And um, But as the generations, from one generation to the next, you can see just a little bit of give. And um, I don't keep a kosher home, and my parents did not keep a kosher home. But I can think of one particular story where my grandparents, who did keep a kosher home, they also um, loved the food of the South. My grandfather loved peanuts. He loved uh, boiled peanuts. He loved um, to take us crabbing. Crabbing and fish were on the co in the coast, and the uh, backwaters are just full of shrimp and uh, crabs. And he would love the sport of it but he would not eat it, but he would, we would sit back on the back steps of our porch while our grandfather would boil a big kettle, help us throw those crabs in that we caught. And then we would, uh, the kids would crack, he'd show us how to crack them, but he would never eat them. And not a crab or a shrimp was allowed inside. So uh, now that's, you know, semi hands off semi. um a lot of a lot of folks now will eat barbecue for, you know um will eat barbecue will have so, uh, soft shell crab if there's no allergies um there we're a bountiful state when it comes to to uh, fish and soft shell crab and probably things that are um, not great for your diet, but delicious like barbecue and barbecue ribs. So, yes, <laughs> we have assimilated our taste buds. My mother was strongly uh, a Jewish woman and kept a beautiful home, but she loved her barbecue ribs. And you're speaking for yourself. We're not speaking for all of Jewish South Carolina. <laughs> right, right. We, we have people that still keep very kosher. Absolutely, and, and different yeah. degrees of of what they where they feel comfortable. Absolutely, I'll tell yeah. you another. You know, the set my same family member um, who was a participant in that boiling crabs. Uh, uh, he he now owns a restaurant. Eli Hyman owns a, a, a kind of infamous seafood restaurant in Charleston called Hyman Seafood, and uh, one of the southern delicacies is shrimp and grits. Have you heard of that? Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. So he was uh he 
Now, Eli is kosher. I mean, he is uh, my, my, well, he wouldn't, he's a little bit younger than me, but he and his wife and his brought his children up in a kosher, strictly kosher home. But for his business, he does serve, you know, shellfish um, and all kinds of wonderful Southern uh, foods. But he decided instead of make, not instead, in addition to serving shrimp and grits, he was going to make a dish with salmon. So he makes this really good salmon and grits for folks that, yeah, who do not want to eat shellfish or have a shellfish allergy or who kind of keep a kosher-like existence when they eat out or they don't want to eat shellfish. So he made a delicious salmon and um, grits. It's in the the recipes in the book. That sounds wonderful. Mm. Yeah. Now, I want to kind of talk about some of the people that you featured. Can we talk about some of the Jewish entrepreneurs, grocers, restaurateurs, and bakers whose food-based businesses have impacted Southern foodways? Absolutely. That was really one of the um, more interesting aspects of the book when we started gathering stories. We gathered the stories and we weren't really sure. It wasn't like we had set out to have different categories. But when the stories came in, they sort of found their way into all these different categories. And one of them that we were most pleased by were all the Jewish uh, food-related businesses and the entrepreneurs. And I think we could have created a whole book on that because I know there are more stories out there. So one of the interesting stories is my husband's family. He grew up in Sumter, South Carolina, which is a medium-sized city. And he was, um, his great-grandfather came to this country and managed to acquire some land and started farming. You don't normally think of Jews as farmers, but South Carolina, there are quite a few. And his family were farmers up until the 90s, and they were peach growers. They had peach orchards. So we have a story about the peach orchards and um, and a great peach cobbler recipe to go with that, of course. Um, his his mother's family, her father, was pigeon master during World War One, and became a pigeon expert. So when oh, he, wow. yeah, he was he's like a Renaissance man. So when he returned home to Sumter, he and a friend started the Palmetto Pigeon Plant, and they raised pigeons. They raised squab that they began shipping all over the place. Nowadays, it's still in operation. They um, ship pusin and squab and um, Cornish game hen. Um, and his, um, my husband's mother was at the helm for a short time. Uh, this is back in the 80s. And uh, she was a pretty good marketing person. So she took her squab recipe and sent it off to Southern Living Magazine. And they published it. And it was a great way to get folks to get familiar with squab because that was a high-end delicacy but this way it was to bring it into that you know more of a um, conscious of America you know the Southern Living magazine gets into a lot of homes um so squab recipe um I have the um every year they would publish an annual of recipes and I happen to have the 1982 book with her squab recipe in there so that was a pretty good story. We also have a lot of grocers. Um, Clara Baker, who, um, Lisa, do you want to talk about your Aunt Clara? She was a really strong woman. Well, my whole family actually came, my paternal family came from 
uh, the Ukraine and Poland and Rush, Russia, which is now the Ukraine parts of uh, Russia. Um, and they came to New York and found their way from by sponsors uh, down south. Rachel actually could talk to you about the Jewish merchant movement, uh, maybe after when I'm finished, because she's actually doing a project uh, in the Jewish Historical Society on Jewish merchants, because it was such a typical um, uh, um, uh, way uh, for uh, people who came to the South to find work. And so they would start as peddlers and end up with small grocery stores or small mercantile stores. And then eventually maybe Army Navy stores and eventually department stores. But my uh, grandfather's family was very industrious. And um, Clara was his sister. And uh, my father, my grandfather had a grocery store, a liquor store, and then eventually an Army Navy store. Clara started with a grocery store in a very African, most of these were in neighborhoods where, which were uh, populated, you know, Jews grew up right next door to the African-Americans. So she worked, had her store downstairs and she lived upstairs for a while. I don't think she did that forever, but, um, and she served everybody, everybody equal of, you know, equal of, and all the time she would let, uh, you know, people put the, uh, put things on credit. And, um, so she was a, a, a wonderful woman, worked very hard and, um, uh, what actually was honored by the city of Columbia for, for her, for her work as a, a, a strong woman, uh, in, in the day. But I, I think that the Jewish merchant story brought so many of our grandparents, uh, down South because there was work and there were sponsors and brothers or sisters. And so eventually some of that led to some of the Jewish, uh, 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 businesses like Jewish butchers, um, Jewish restaurants, Jewish, some delis, uh, there were delis, um, and, um, um, but so, yeah, a lot of the folks in, uh, in, in these small towns were, uh, Jewish, uh, owned by Jewish merchants. So, the book, um, Kugels and Collards, will be out today as of this writing. Now, many people perceive Southern culture as a monolith, and I think many people in the South would have you believe that's the case. How do you think this book will change perceptions of uh, Southern people? How will it change perceptions of Southern Jews? Or Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it will. <laughs> I think what we're doing is is just, uh, you know, a snapshot, maybe, like I said before, maybe people, their eyes will open to the fact that Jewish food isn't just a corned beef sandwich from a deli in New York, but there are yeah. other recipes. Um, but there are some similarities. I mean, you know, a great big bowl of matzo ball soup or a fabulous challah. We've got great recipes for some of the baked goods like the rugula and, and things like that as well. So there are similarities, but, you know, it's, um, and there are differences. So my hope is, is that, you know, it just opens people's eyes to something a little bit different. Perhaps it's always been there, 
it's the way we always ate. So in my mind, you know, it, it's, um, that's been a surprise, I guess, if you would say, hey, what were you surprised at with the book is the fact that um, people have not known about this. The Southern Jewish table is not something that is a well-known kind of um, um, type of, I mean, it, you can't call it a culinary, um, but it's different. It's bringing together cultures, which is important. That is what this country should be about is bringing together people. So that's what, um, and one, one of the things we really also wanted to do um, beside introduce folks to our, you know, that there really are Jews in the South. We have good recipes. <laughs> We're not as plentiful as the bigger, you know, bigger cities or metropolitans, but, um, but um, that we, that we also share the table with African-Americans who um, have helped us either by preparing foods or and they, these were employed uh, folks who helped our grandparents or our parents. And we wanna honor these women and men who were in the bakeries and who were in the kitchens. We wanna honor them for their contributions and their recipes and um, and that, that that they stand by themselves, you know, that they stand on their own and we didn't want these lost. So we do do a, uh, there are many in, in the book, we have a couple of recipes, um, well, a couple of essays as well as recipes that are honoring Annie Gilliard's um, uh, Gregumbo. And, um, and it, you know, it, you, you'll see that these women played a huge part in the Southern kitchen. Um, our grandmothers taught these women how to keep kosher. And in turn, they would bring some of their foods and whatever was the season, um, uh, sands the pork and bacon, <laughs> um, and they would bring those and share those goods with, with our families. Now, I can't tell you that, you know, that, that anybody would take um, would take a Google recipe home with with them, but maybe I don't know. Maybe they did. Uh, you know, it, it's just a way I think that we were not a, really we were aware of, and maybe didn't appreciate till we wrote this book how important that was. Are there any favorite recipes from the book that you remember uh, that it pertained to Passover or Hanukkah that you want to talk about? Um, Rachel, talk about the chopped liver wars. <laughs> yeah, that one's good. So there's a great story about chopped liver in the book. And it's from um, actually from someone who grew up in New York City, but married a Southern woman from Columbia. And this story is about his um, remembrances of coming down south for Passover and how everybody seemed to have their own chopped liver recipe. And in the course of their uh, visiting with family and relatives and being at the Seders, they would experience three different chopped liver wars. I mean, three different chopped liver recipes that were all very different. Um, so it's um, it's a great way to get in three recipes, but it's also a really nice story written from a point of view of someone who didn't grow up in the South, but had, has come to appreciate 
what uh, being around the, the Southern Jewish Passover table meant to him. As far as other recipes, you know, somebody asked me that last week and it's sort of like saying, which of your children are your favorite? <laughs> I love all of them. Plus they're not our recipes. These are recipes given to us from all these different families, which we are so grateful to the contributors for opening up their hearts and their recipe boxes to contribute to this project. We wouldn't have this without them. Yeah. And yes, I was just going to say some of them were not written recipes for sure. Um, oh, yeah. A lot of them were told or even lost recipes from the Holocaust that were remembered and brought down from family culture. And um, so these told recipes, we actually had to recreate in a recipe form in the book. And we kind of apologetically do that. But now we, you know, um, we, we do have those recipes written down. Now the book is out today as of this um, airing. I wanna ask, um, what was it like to hold the book in your hand when you got it from the publisher? <laughs> that was exciting. Now that was like having a baby, <laughs> like having yeah. your baby, because we, we worked on it. It was a long labor, four years, and lots and lots and lots of edits. And um, we, we just had so much fun with it. It was almost unbelievable. We were presented the books, uh, Rachel and I were, uh, we invited actually our publisher uh, from University of South Carolina Press and the marketing director to dinner. And lo and behold, did we not know, we did not realize that the books had just come in that day. And th these were just the um, advanced copies. And they, uh, we turned around and the manager had a, had a big bag. And in that bag was two Kugels and collards, hard copies and oh boy you could have heard us yell you did hear us people turned at the, at the other time we were extremely yeah. excited we've been patient so my last question is now that the book's out what's next for you oh good question i'm i'm pursuing more projects with the jewish historical society of south carolina we have a lot of online projects my hope is you know Kugels and Collards will continue. We'll continue to um, gather some stories. And then um, who knows? I don't know. Lisa and I have had a good time working together on this. So we'll see what, what the future holds. Right. Um, when we had our photo shoot for the book, our food photographer, we were on Rachel's porch shooting a the last uh, a photo for uh, we thought would be for the last chapter. And those photos just turned out so beautiful that we said, and he said, here is the cover for your next book about um, maybe Jewish celebrations and brunches and uh, the word Yiddish word is Simka. So we've been toying with that a little bit. We'll see. We have to kind of get through this and enjoy this. And But this has been a delight. We've enjoyed this hour this thank 20 you. minutes this <laughs> thank you well i want to thank you both uh for being on the um the podcast rachel and lisa i want to thank you um i want to mention to the listeners that kugels and collards will be out today at all better bookstores and you could buy it online we will have links to purchase the book in the bio and information where you can look at the website as well rachel and lisa thanks for being on the podcast
Thank you, Dean. Thank you, Dean. All right, we'll go ahead and end there. That was my conversation with Rachel Gordon Barnett and Lisa Kligman Harvey. Their new book, Kugels and Collards, is out now. We have links to purchase the book in the bio, and you can also get it at all better bookstores. Next week, we will have Canadian author Karen Pearson, whose new book, Recipes for Murder, 66 Dishes That Celebrate the Mysteries of Agatha Christie, will be out. You won't want to miss that conversation and learn a lot about the great author, Agatha Christie. Until next time, I'll see you at the library.